Well, good morning. It is always a privilege to be able to open God's Word um, for the church. Um, should be a, a somewhat fearful privilege, though, because we have no desire to preach or teach error, uh, preach or teach heresy or mislead anyone. <clears throat> and at the same time, uh, we don't want to uh, preach or teach in order to please men. It is our desire to please and accurately represent our God. So, this morning, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've been walking in faith for any period of time, it is likely, in fact, it's almost certain that you have experienced some form of suffering. <clears throat> Christians suffer. We suffer in many different ways. Christians suffer under the loss of jobs and economic security, uh, wondering how we'll provide for the needs of our families, and a number of people here at Crossway have experienced this. Believers suffer the loss of loved ones to accidents or to diseases like cancer, and certainly think of uh, Al's loss of Lucy recently. Some Christians suffer with ongoing health issues that never seem to end. And just when you think there's light at the end of the tunnel, uh, some new complication develops and the physical pain and discomfort, suffering continue. And the world is a dangerous place due to the fact that we live in a fallen world where everything and everyone has been affected negatively by sin. And as believers, we are not immune to that danger. Just a few months ago, Christian Garza was diligently going about his business when he was struck by a drunk driver and lost both of his legs. And he continues to be treated in a hospital down in Los Angeles, and he will either be living with prosthetics or he will be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, and that has certainly caused considerable suffering for him, for April, and for the kids. Some believers here are suffering in difficult marriages, and that's a result of pride or unwillingness to forgive or refusal to live in obedience to what Christ commands. Some of you may have suffered emotionally because someone in the congregation offended you or sinned against you. And that's something we should actually anticipate happening because we are a congregation of sinners, redeemed sinners, but we still sin. And some here have undoubtedly suffered the loss of reputation. Uh, maybe you've been mocked, slandered, or marginalized because you've been outspoken in your faith. And if that hasn't happened to you yet, uh, you can pretty much anticipate that it will happen at some point in the future, particularly uh, considering uh, the current assault on biblical truth regarding gender and sexuality. The reality is that trials, difficulty, tragedy, and suffering have always and will always be with us. All believers will experience some form of suffering throughout the course of our lives. That is a certainty. The Word of God 
tells us this. It is the plight of man living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Job 5, 7, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. 1 Peter 4, 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And you notice that Peter and James say when the trials come, not if the trials come, but when the trials will come because they will most certainly come as surely as the sparks fly upward. Now, Peter and James were writing to believers in the context of suffering under persecution, but James does mention trials of various kinds, and it is possible that the various kinds of trials that the people that James was writing to uh, would have included some of the forms of physical and emotional suffering I mentioned earlier. Suffering in this life is a certainty even for Christians. And at times, our suffering may seem so unfair, so intense, so long-lasting that it may cause us to question God's character or wonder, what in the world is he doing? Why is he doing this? We do know from Scripture, and you've heard this from me many times before, that God is absolutely sovereign. He's in complete control of every aspect of his creation. He declares the end from the beginning, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's sovereign. We also know that God is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's 1 Chronicles 16, 34. Good and upright is the Lord, Psalm 25, 8. Scripture also shows us that God is wise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Job twelve thirteen, And we absolutely know that God is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. We know all these things about God, but when our suffering is so intense and seemingly never-ending, we may begin to question God's goodness. We may question His wisdom. We may question His sovereignty. We may even question His love for us. Why is this happening to me? Why does it never end? What is God doing? Why doesn't God answer my prayers for relief? What is he doing? So this is why it's absolutely crucial that we all have a sound biblical understanding of suffering. It's why we all need a sound biblical theology of the suffering of believers Where does it come from? What's the purpose, or is there a purpose? And why me? Why is this happening to me? 
Now, if you're attending the Equipping Hour series on 1 Peter, that will certainly help you to develop your theology of suffering. And this morning, hopefully, we'll further develop a proper understanding of the suffering of believers as we look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. And that last song we sang in worship uh, gave you a preview of what you're going to hear from Hebrews 12. So, before we do that, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning to worship you uh, by learning from your word. Open our eyes to the truths that you would impress upon our hearts. Help us by your spirit to better know and understand you and your will for us. Please keep me from error in the preaching of your word and use it to further strengthen our faith in you, our hope, and our joy in you. And use it to further transform us into the likeness of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, if you have your Bibles turned there, and while you're doing that, I'm going to give you a little context uh, before we actually get into the passage. Believers of the church that this letter was written to were predominantly Jews who had trusted in Christ as Messiah and Savior, hence the Hebrew title of the letter. They were mainly Hebrews, mainly Jews, and as with any gathering of professing believers, may have been some who were not true believers, and some who may have simply been curious or searching. The believers who made up this church had apparently suffered um, some form of persecution from the Jewish community that they had come out of, <clears throat> and we see that in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. You don't need to turn there. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. <clears throat> so, since these Hebrew Christians hadn't hidden their faith in Christ, they had been slandered, they'd been insulted, uh, mistreated publicly, verbally abused, no doubt. They were subjected to dishonor and disgrace in that Jewish community, and this was all for their faith in Christ. Some may have been beaten, <clears throat> some were imprisoned, imprisoned, and they had their property forcefully taken from them. Not only did they suffer these things personally, but they identified with other believers who were going through the same type of treatment. And the author of Hebrews is reminding them of how in the midst of that suffering, they joyfully accepted it, joyfully submitted to it because of their faith, because of their hope in Christ. And then moving ahead from that time of trial, whatever form their current um, suffering was taking, the author of the letter is concerned that as these trials and suffering continue, there is a danger that some would ultimately buckle under the pressure of that persecution and suffering, that they would renounce their faith and that they would return to Judaism. And that's why throughout Hebrews, the author continually points to the superiority of Christ over the old covenant, and he encourages them 
to persevere in the faith to the very end for the reward that's promised to those who have trusted in Christ, trusted in his death and resurrection to save them from the consequences of their sin. And then in chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith, the author reminds the Hebrew church of many of the Old Testament examples of living by faith, how people were able to endure much through faith, how they accomplish much through faith, how they were able to suffer much through faith and for their faith in Christ and in the future hope of that Messiah who was Christ. Suffering under horrific to- torture, sometimes terrible destitution, and even death for their faith, sawed in two, horrible death. And then in chapters 12, these believers are given and we are given insight and tremendous encouragement in the midst of suffering. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, that passage addresses five major points regarding the suffering of believers. At least, I have broken it down into five major points. And that is the race that requires suffering, the God who renders suffering, the reason for suffering, the response to suffering, and the reward for suffering. It took me a long time to get all R's in those points. So. <clears throat> Verses 1 and 2 show us the race that requires suffering. The author begins this section with the word, therefore, and that connects uh, what he's about to say to the previous chapter where he gave that long list of examples of people uh, who exemplified 
a life of faith. What he's saying is, since we have all of these examples of living by faith, regardless of the cost or consequences, let's follow their example and get rid of anything in our lives that might keep us from living by faith in Christ. Get rid of anything, whether good or bad, because even good things, good things, when not kept in their proper place or perspective, can hinder or distract us from a fully committed life of faith in Christ. So get rid of anything that would hold us back or weigh us down, but especially get rid of sin, which is the antithesis of faith. Living by faith is living with complete trust in God, believing and trusting in all that God is and has revealed. And that faith, that trust, is evidenced by our obeying all that He commands. Trusting that the Lord always knows what's best and what He requires of us is always for our good and for His glory. And therefore... As a result of that trust in his goodness and his wisdom, we live a life that is characterized by obedience, living in accordance with all that he commands. Sin is the opposite of that, is a failure to trust, and it's a failure to obey God. So get rid of sin. And this is necessary because how the author describes the life of faith, he uses the metaphor of an endurance race, not a sprint, not a 50-yard dash, but something more like a marathon or actually more like an ultra marathon. It's a race that will last a lifetime, and it's a race that will require tremendous perseverance, stamina, and effort right up until the very end, either until we die or Christ returns. And having less weight to carry, having fewer entanglements, whether good or bad, having fewer of those things will enable us to run more easily, and it will make us less likely to stumble and fall. I don't know if you've ever watched a marathon race, but uh, you will never see a marathoner wearing a suit and tie. You will never see a marathoner in high heels and a skirt. You will never see a marathoner carrying a 50-pound backpack. That would be ridiculous, and it would make it impossible for them to complete the race. The metaphor is an endurance race. The life of faith is not a neighborhood jog. In an endurance race, you push yourself. You push yourself to the absolute physical limit. It is a struggle. It can be agonizingly painful. An endurance race involves physical suffering if you expect to win. Muscles and tendons can get torn. Bones can get broken. Your heart and lungs will feel like they're about to explode. In a life of faith, the race that is set before us, a life committed to following Christ will involve various forms of suffering. 
And we have to get rid of sin because it will weigh us down. It will trip us up. It will cause us to stumble. It will hinder our forward movement in obedience. It will hinder our forward movement in sanctification. So stop sinning. Stop going your own way. Stop disobeying God. Get rid of sin. Get rid of it. And then the author tells us where to look as we run the race. He doesn't tell us to look at the long path ahead. He doesn't tell us to look at all the obstacles that are out in our pathway, blocking our forward movement. He doesn't say to look at all the other runners in the race. He doesn't say to look at the scenery as we're running the race. Where does he say to look? Verse 2, look to, look to, are you reading? Who do we look to? You look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as you run the lifetime race of faith. As you encounter obstacles in your path, as you begin to doubt your ability to continue, as you think you can't go on when you want to quit, You look to Jesus in faith. Keep your eyes of faith fixed on him. Look to the one who brought you to life and gave you the gift of faith. Look to the one who will give you the grace to endure your suffering. Look to the one who will lift you up when you stumble. Look to the one who will complete the work of faith he began in you and who will perfect your faith. Look to Jesus. When you think your suffering in this life is too great, you look to Jesus, who is our ultimate example of how to suffer. He suffered more. He suffered more painfully. He suffered more deeply than we ever have or ever will. Look to Jesus. And not only do we look to Jesus as our example of how to suffer, but we look to Jesus because we can't do this on our own. We need Him. We look to Him because He promises to always be with us. He will be with us when we are suffering. He will strengthen us to endure. He will comfort us. He will encourage us. He will lift us up. He will grow our faith, grow our hope and our joy in Him in the midst of suffering. And the admonition to look to Jesus, I should bring to mind um, the story of Peter, which I know you're all familiar with. Peter's out on the Sea of Galilee with some of the other disciples, and he sees Jesus walking across the water towards the boat. Well, Peter jumps out of the boat, and he begins to walk on water towards Jesus. But as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to look at the stormy wind and waves around him, he began to sink. And Jesus, of course, rescued him. If he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, he would have been fine. So look to Jesus. Keep your eyes of faith fixed on Jesus when you are suffering. And look at verses 2 and 4 again. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross because of the joy of the promised reward when he completed his mission, when he finished his race, that he would be exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and he was, and he is. And when it says that Jesus despised the shame, it means that he considered the shame heaped on him as insignificant compared to the reward that lay ahead of him. Death on the cross was the most shameful form of execution in the Roman Empire. It was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. But Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross and Contrary to some of the pictures you may see, he was stripped completely naked. He was whipped bloody and beaten, and he was shamefully, shamefully exposed where he was abused and mocked and ridiculed. The Son of God, God in the flesh. Yet, he considered that shame of little consequence compared to the joy of the reward that was set before him. And the author also reminds these Hebrew uh, believers that Jesus suffered in the same way uh, that they were suffering, yet they had not suffered to the point of death in their struggle against sin as Jesus had. And the point is that if Jesus could die in his struggle against sin, then they could endure the lesser persecution, the lesser suffering that they were experiencing. The example, the encouragement to, to these Hebrew believers and to you and I is to look beyond our present circumstances. Look beyond our present suffering. Develop a heavenly perspective, not a worldly perspective. Follow Jesus' example of faith and look to God's promised reward for enduring in the faith. And that reward, spoken of in the song that we sang, that reward is eternal life in His presence, living in glorified bodies like Jesus. No more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow. Life in face-to-face communion with Christ where there is unfathomable, unfathomable joy and pleasure forever. Christian life is a lifelong marathon, ultra-marathon, an endurance race of faith that will be filled with struggle and suffering, and in order to finish the race and receive the reward, 
We must look to Jesus. That's the race that requires suffering. And then verses 5 and 6 show us the God who renders suffering. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The author is explaining to these believers that the suffering they are experiencing is actually discipline from the Lord. God the Father disciplines, He reproves, He chastises. The Lord is ultimately responsible for the suffering they are experiencing, and He is responsible for the trials and suffering we experience. Throughout Scripture, we see that God may use, He may direct control or prevent the actions of evil men. He may ordain through direct decree or permission that his people be afflicted with disease or catastrophic circumstances. He may even allow Satan to have influence over us, to afflict us. And certainly you see an example of that in the record of Job's life. But the fact is, God is, He is the one ordaining, declaring, determining, directing, or preventing what we experience in our lives. And I made the point earlier, I'll say it again, God is absolutely sovereign over every detail of His creation, which means He's sovereign over every detail of our lives, including the trials and suffering. Isaiah 46.10, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is in control of everything that happens, including our suffering, because he works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing is outside of his direct control. So it's God who renders, or we could say applies or ordains discipline to believers that results in suffering. And that suffering, that suffering that we experience is not without purpose. It is not without reason. It is not arbitrary or random. It's not the irrational act of a capricious or sinful or imperfect God like you might see in Greek or Roman mythology. Everything that the God of the Bible does is governed by His infinite and holy power, wisdom, grace, mercy, and love. But what is the reason? or reasons for the discipline that results in suffering. Verses 5 through 10 again. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. Now, the author says that the Lord disciplines His children, and that word discipline is really important word, if not the key word in this passage. And the Greek word <clears throat> that's translated as discipline is the word pedia. And basically, pedia means training, especially the moral or ethical training of children. And MacArthur's commentary explains the meaning of the word as whatever parents or teachers do to train, correct, cultivate and educate children in order to help them develop and mature as they ought. This is what God is doing for His children. This is what He is doing for us when He applies discipline to us that results in suffering. He's training us so that we will grow and mature in the faith. He's training us so that we will grow into Christ-likeness, sharing in His holiness. And the overarching reason that God, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us, trains us, is because He loves us. He loves us. And that love is perfect. It's holy. It's untainted by any sinful attitude or motive, and I might add that He doesn't love us because we deserve His love. He doesn't love us because we're so lovable, because we are not. He loves us because He is love. God is love, and God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and now we love Him because He first loved us. God is our loving Father. And as our loving Father, He wants what's best for us. He knows what's best for us. And He will always do what is best for us, even if it hurts. He will do what's best for us and what's necessary to grow us in the faith to grow us to full maturity in Christ. He will complete the work He began in us. He loves us. So that's the first reason God disciplines us, because He loves us. The second reason God dip- disciplines us is for our education, so that we will learn. If you're a believer, you're God's adopted child, and just like any child There is much we need to learn, and I suppose in many ways, we're like the children in our own families in that we might think we already know it all, especially if we're teenage children. But, of course, we don't. We are woefully ignorant of so many things, so we do 
need to learn. What do we learn from God's discipline? We learn what God is like and what He requires of us. Now, we do learn those things from His Word. That's the first place we learn them. But they become more real to us when we're taken through the discipline of suffering. Now, remember, when I was going through uh, chemotherapy for colon cancer years ago, I learned experientially what I'd read in Scripture and studied in Scripture many times. I learned experientially of God's love, His care, His comfort. I learned of His provision and His peace and hope in the midst of what was a difficult time and what could have easily ended in my physical death. And when I visited a Christian a week ago, a little over a week ago, he shared that uh, he has also become very much assured of God's sovereign control even over this terrible accident. Very much assured of God's love his goodness, his provision, and hope through this severe and ongoing trial. So when we suffer under God's loving discipline, we also learn to pray without ceasing because very often that's all we can do. We learn to immerse ourselves in His Word and meditate on it day and night because that's where we find our comfort and our hope promised to us. We learn to obey His Word. King David speaks to that experience in Psalm 119, 71. He said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And even Jesus in his human nature, learned from suffering. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So, we learn what God requires of us, and we learn obedience. We also learn of our need for the church. Suffering can be very humbling and that it reveals to us that we can't handle certain trials, really any trial uh, in life on our own. First and foremost, we need Jesus, but He's also provided us with the gift of the church. We need the church. We need the encouragement and support of other believers. We need the encouragement and support of our brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us in our suffering and bear our burdens. We also learn of God's comfort, and we grow in compassion for others who are experiencing similar discipline and suffering so that we can comfort them. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort 
those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God disciplines with suffering, comforting us in that suffering so that we can comfort others. We also learn that God is faithful to keep all His promises, and certainly we learn that God is sovereign. We learn from experience what we have learned from His Word. There's an ancient Greek saying that agrees with this biblical truth. Uh, The saying is, to learn is to suffer, and to suffer is to learn. God disciplines us with suffering so that we will learn. God also disciplines us for our protection. He may discipline us in a way that protects us from certain influences or people. He may set up barriers to keep us from sinning or to protect us from our own foolishness, our own sinfulness. The Apostle Paul is an example of this. God gave him a painful thorn in the flesh to keep him humble and dependent on the grace of God. It protected him from sinful, self-sufficient pride. And if you're a good parent, undoubtedly you have put up restrictions and barriers on your children to protect them. And God disciplines us in a similar way for our protection. Now, God also disciplines us for our correction. In other words, if we are continually sinning or we have one particular besetting sin and we refuse to turn from it, the Lord may bring painful consequences to turn us away or wean us off that sin. The discipline of painful consequences is in order to move us away from the path of sin and into the path of righteousness and obedience. So if you're someone who is lazy or slothful, then that certainly is a sin. And you're lazy on your job, God may allow you to be fired in order to motivate you to work harder at your next employer. If you are given to drunkenness, you may end up in a wreck or doing something that could result in the loss of your freedom. You may lose your health. Or worse, it may result in the loss of life or the loss of your family. And if you're continually looking at porn Someday, your sin may be discovered and you will potentially suffer shame, loss of trust, and if you're married, you may lose your marriage. So, that is something to consider if you're going through a difficult time of trial and suffering. Is there some unconfessed or unrepented of sin that you continue to entertain or make provision for or actively pursue. Because if so, that sin needs to be dealt with. You need to kill it before God deals with you in corrective discipline. Now, I need to make clarification here before we go on. First of all, 
<clears throat> Don't be like Job's friends and automatically assume that every instance of suffering is an indication of some sin that God is dealing with, okay, because that's not the case. Job was a perfect example of that. Job 1.1 says that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, but Job's suffering was terrible. So, sin is not always the cause of discipline or suffering, and it's definitely not punishment or judgment against sin. God's punishment His judgment against our sin, the pouring out of His anger and wrath and eternal condemnation, all of that was poured out on Christ suffering on the cross in our place. Every sin believers have ever or will ever commit was punished decisively and permanently on the cross. God's justice was fully, fully satisfied on the cross. So, God disciplines us in order to correct or turn us away from sin, painful as it may be, but it's out of His love for us, and it produces the desired effect, which is obedience and righteousness. Would be correct to say that um, sin, our sin, uh, certainly displeases God. And unrepentant sin will certainly hinder our relationship with the Lord, but the discipline of correction is out of love for us, not anger or wrath or punishment. Okay, so quick review. The reason God disciplines us with what are often painful circumstances, the reason He trains us with suffering is first and foremost because He loves us and He always does what's best for us. And He disciplines us to train us because we are His children. We need to learn. We need to be protected. We need to be corrected until we grow to full maturity. We need to be trained until we are transformed into Christ's likeness, sharing in His holiness. Now, a final reason we see in the passage for our discipline is to give evidence of our sonship, to reassure us that we have truly trusted in Christ as Savior, and are submitted to and obeying Him as Lord. We are God's children adopted into His family, and He is our Father and a good Father. Verses 7 and 8 is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's really a no-brainer when it comes to understanding that discipline is evidence that we are God's children and that He is our Father. Just as in uh, earthly interactions with parents and children, we understand that biblically it is the parent's responsibility to discipline or train their own children. Proverbs are full of instructions and admonitions for training children, disciplining them away from sin and foolishness into the path of wisdom and righteous living. And on an earthly level, we understand that it's our responsibility to discipline our own children, not our neighbor's children, not some stranger's child throwing a fit at Walmart. 
disturbing everyone around them. You might really want to discipline that child, but it's not your responsibility and, and it probably could get you into some trouble. On the other hand, if it's your child that's throwing a fit in Walmart on a Saturday morning, then by all means give your child the discipline they deserve and they need. And the Proverbs also make it abundantly clear that the parent that doesn't discipline their child is setting them up for failure, and a lack of discipline is actually evidence that the parent doesn't love them. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So the disciplining of our children is evidence that they are ours and that we are good and loving parents. Likewise, then, the discipline that we receive from the Lord is evidence that we are His children and that He is a good and loving Father always doing what is best for us. And I will point out that in verse 6, the ESV says or translates a word as chastises. He chastises every son whom he receives. Well, that word chastises is really a softened translation of the original Greek word. A better and more literal translation of the word would be flogs or scourges. And it refers to a beating or a whipping with a scourge. And a scourge was a multi-thonged leather whip that was embedded with pieces of metal and glass. And when the victim was whipped with a scourge, it would literally rip and shred the flesh and muscle off of their back and bones. And sometimes after a scourging, the individual could die from blood loss. It was so terrible. It's extremely painful, obviously, and extremely traumatic, potentially deadly. So what, what this indicates is that the discipline from the Lord can be very intense. It can be very painful. It's not just sending us to our room for a time out or restricting our video gaming time. His, his discipline can produce real and intense suffering. And again, that painful discipline that results in real suffering is evidence of his love. It's evidence that we are His children, and it's for our training so that we will learn, be protected, and corrected away from sin. It's for our good, and it's from our good and loving Father. So, <clears throat> those are the reasons for our suffering, at least general categories of reasons for our suffering. Now, let's consider the responses to suffering that we see in the passage. The author warns these believers not to go down the path of a couple of very negative responses to the Lord's discipline. We see the first negative response in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. They're told to look to Jesus, <clears throat> focus on him, consider his own suffering, enduring the shame and suffering of the cross so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
hearted, these believers that are being written to are being worn down emotionally and spiritually, possibly even physically, from the constant persecution that they are being subjected to. And the fear was that they would be worn out to the point that they would lose heart, that they would give up their will to continue in the faith because of the suffering that their professed faith has brought them. So don't grow weary. Don't become faint-hearted. Don't give up. And another negative response they're warned against is in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not regard lightly. That can be understood as to make light of or to look down on the Lord's discipline as something that is insignificant or of little value. Don't look down on the Lord's discipline as worthless. You you can see how these believers or how we might view the Lord's discipline as worthless, especially, especially if we don't understand the reasons for it. If your suffering goes on and on and on and all you see are the negative and painful uh, ramifications on an earthly or a temporal plane, it would be tempting to consider that discipline as having little or no value. All you know is pain. And that's why the author has gone to such great length in the rest of the letter of the Hebrews to expound on all that we have through faith in Christ to give a long list of examples of living by faith regardless of the consequences And this is why the author has explained the certainty of suffering under discipline that comes from the life of faith in Christ, and it's why he expounds on the reasons for the discipline, emphasizing that it's evidence of God's love and the believer's sonship. It's evidence that God is our good and loving Father. And even though believers may never be given detailed or specific reasons for their discipline or suffering, just like Job He was never told what had gone on in the heavenly councils that resulted in his suffering. We may never know the secret details because the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't need to know those things. But we can know that the discipline that results in suffering is because God loves us. It's for our good. So don't lose heart. Don't give up when overwhelmed. The suffering. And don't consider the discipline of the Lord of little value. It is necessary. It is for our good, and it has great value. Now, what God our Father does want from us in response to His loving discipline is that we endure it, that we submit to it. Verse 7, it is for the discipline, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And then the author makes a comparison in verses uh, 9 through 10 between our respectful submission to the discipline of our earthly fathers who were only sinful men doing what they thought was best and it was for uh, a temporary benefit. Therefore, we should be all the more willing to gladly submit to the perfect discipline of our all-knowing, infinitely wise, holy, just, and infinitely loving Father whose discipline is always good and right, and it has eternal benefits. And that submission is not just a, a superficial, begrudging submission like some of our children display at times, submitting on the 
outside, all the while grumbling, complaining, and resisting on the inside. Uh, that's not what it's supposed to look like. It's the kind of submission to the Lord's discipline that James speaks of in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy. So when you're suffering under the Lord's discipline, submit to it joyfully. God is using it to perfect you, to complete you. And that brings us to the reward for suffering, which James gives us a glimpse of, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does that look like to be perfect and complete? Verses 10 and 11 in our passage tells us, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The outcome of the suffering we experience as we submit to the Lord's discipline is that we are made holy. We are made like God our Father. We experience that peace that comes with righteousness. We are transformed into Christ's likeness. We are fit to stand in the presence of our Holy Father, not just declared sinless and righteous, but actually sinless and righteous. The work He began in us with our election and redemption is made complete with our sanctification as we are made holy through His loving yet painful discipline of suffering. It is painful. And the truth is, it may be unrelenting and it may last a lifetime. We may only see the end of suffering at the end of this life, but the reward is eternal and there's no comparison between this temporary life and what we suffer and the eternal benefit and reward. To share our Father's holiness, made righteous, perfect peace, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and the greatest reward Living in face-to-face communion. With our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is worth every bit temporary suffering in the light of the eternal benefit. And the Apostle Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The race, which is the life of faith in Christ, will involve suffering. 
God our Father is the one who renders or ordains our suffering. The reason for the discipline of suffering is because He loves us. We're His children, and He's training us through learning and protection and correction. And the response to suffering should not be to lose heart. Don't give up. Don't look down on it, but rather endure it and joyfully submit to it. The reward of suffering is that we will share in our Father's holiness. The work will be complete. We will be Christ-like and able to live in His presence, sinless and forever. Now, in closing, I have to make it very clear that these exhortations, the promises, the rewards that are spelled out in chapter 12 of Hebrews that give insight into the source, the nature, and uh, the benefits of God's discipline and suffering. These are only for those who have repented of sin and unbelief and looked to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in His work on the cross, suffering the punishment for our sins and giving us His perfect righteousness so that we could become the children of God. If you have not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then these promises, these rewards are not for you. And the truth is, Your suffering may be God's judgment on you and a preview of your final judgment, and it is meant to turn you to Christ, your only hope of salvation. So consider today the day of salvation and look to Jesus in faith to save you from your sin. Look to Jesus to make peace between you and God. Look to Jesus because He is the way, the truth, and the only source of life. Look to Jesus, for there is salvation in no one and nothing else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So look to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, paying the price for our sin, and rising from the graves victorious over sin and death. Thank you for the fact that we can be forgiven for our sin through faith in Christ and his work on the cross and granted eternal life in your presence as your children. We pray for those who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord that you would open their eyes to their great need and their horrible future apart from you. Bring them to repentance from sin and unbelief. Bring them to faith in Christ. We thank you for the fact that you love your children perfectly, that you discipline us for our good so that we will be made holy like you. Help us to rest and be assured in that knowledge that you are working all things for our good and your glory. And we pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.